Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. This is the second episode of this podcast, and I thank you for listening. For this episode, I would like to discuss William Henry Harrison's running mate and our 10th Vice President, John Tyler, as well as explore Harrison's Virginia background. Now, it may strike you as strange that on what's just the second episode of this podcast, I plan an episode with little discussion of Harrison. However, I assure you there is good reason for that, and we will come back full circle to Harrison by the end. The Harrison-Tyler ticket was unusual in American political history as both were born in Virginia. As choosing a presidential running mate is traditionally seen as a way of expanding the ticket's appeal beyond a certain geographic area, it is rare that we have a presidential and vice-presidential candidate from the same state. The most recent example of this rare running mate combination is in 2000, when George W. Bush chose Dick Cheney as his running mate. At the time, Cheney was a resident of Texas, meaning both candidates would be from the same state. Cheney opted to change his residency back to Wyoming, though in actuality there was no need for him to do so, as there is no law preventing the president and vice president from being from the same state. However, even in the modern era, legacy and tradition remain important to many. Harrison and Tyler were born only a few miles away from one another, with both of their families owning plantations on the James River. The Harrison Plantation was Berkeley, while the Tyler's was Greenway. As of 2016, Greenway is privately owned, so I have not been there. However, Berkeley is open to the public and worth a visit if you find yourself in the Tidewater region. Also, Tyler's later home, Sherwood Forest, is in the area and is still owned by the family, and the grounds are open to visitors, though the interior is off-limits. As of last report, Tyler's grandson still lives there. If you're doing the math and asking yourself, wasn't Tyler in the election of 1840, 176 years before 2016? Then yes, it might come as rather of a shock, but I accurately said his grandson. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. One more familial connection to mention for Harrison and Tyler is that both of their fathers served as governor of Virginia and were one-time rivals for a seat in the state house of Burgesses. However, beyond the early ties, Harrison and Tyler's political ideologies could not have been further apart. From all indications, Harrison supported the traditional Whig doctrines of internal improvements, a national banking system, and tariffs to protect domestic manufacturing, and would likely have supported these in his presidency. Tyler, on the other hand, could more accurately be called a wino, Whig in name only. Tyler believed in traditional democratic doctrines, and only switched to the Whig party due to a dispute with Andrew Jackson over Jackson's heavy-handed tactics to get his way. Tyler's main break with Jackson came with his opposition to the force bill, which, when passed, gave Jackson authority to use military might to put down any potential rebellion in South Carolina during the nullification crisis. I won't go into details here, but this was a tense moment in Jackson's tenure when John C. Calhoun of South Carolina and his Southern supporters asserted that a state could nullify or make void any bill passed by the federal government but deemed unjust by the state. Nothing could go wrong with that policy, right? In a nutshell, as would play out during his presidency, Tyler was a strict constructionalist, meaning that he believed there was no room for interpretation, 
and that the only powers granted to the federal government were the ones actually written in the Constitution, with the rest belonging to the states. Tyler felt that the federal government did not have the constitutional authority to compel compliance of a state through military force, and angered pro-Jackson factions by voting against the force bill in the Senate. As Tyler was soon up for re-election, he was only able to retain his seat through Whig support and thus began his drift into the other political camp. This same political ideology was still firmly in place when he succeeded to the presidency. So Tyler angered the Whigs when he opposed chartering a new national bank, expressed his belief that tariffs should only be used to bring in revenue when needed rather than protect business, and supported the annexation of Texas. In particular, his stance on Texas is a tell of his alignment with the southern region as Southerners saw bringing Texas into the Union as aligned with ideas of expanding slavery. However, Tyler's ideological stances should not have come as much of a surprise by Whig leaders of the time as, even during the election, a Democrat is noted as remarking, Tip is Whig, Tie is Democrat. Turning away from Tyler for a moment, let's take a look at Virginia leading up to 1840. The state at this time was in a slow decline from the days of the Virginia dynasty having a stranglehold on the presidency. However, it was still a powerful force in the nation. As with many southern Atlantic states, there was a tension between the more prosperous eastern region along the coast and the more rural communities of the mountainous west. Politically, the state had been firmly in Democratic hands for the first third of the 19th century, but Whig leaders such as Benjamin W. Lee were making inroads as disenchanted Democrats like Tyler drifted over to the Whig Party in the mid-1830s. As in other states in the Union, newspaper editors exerted considerable influence over state and national politics, and the Virginia kingmaker, or breaker, depending on which side of his you ended up on, was Thomas Ritchie, editor of the Richmond Enquirer, and head of the Democratic political machine referred to as the Richmond Junto. That's spelled J-U-N-T-O, for those unfamiliar with the term. However, Democrats in Virginia were on shaky grounds due to infighting over the state and federal response to the Panic of 1837. The party was split between adherence to the idea of hard currency over paper money and taking a stricter stance towards banks who had refused to pay out in hard currency versus a faction supporting a, quote, Doctrine of Governmental Aid to Banking and Credit Organizations. Further, there is a dispute in the National Party over Van Buren's proposed fix to the nation's economic system, known as the Sub-Treasury, which I'm planning to discuss in a future podcast. This dispute even left one of the state's Senate seats vacant for two years, only to finally be filled by the same occupant as previously recently converted Whig politician William Cabal Reeves, who had still been a Democrat when he was benched by an inconclusive re-election vote. If you're interested in reading more about this time in Virginia's political history, I recommend Howard Braverman's article, The Economic and Political Background of the Conservative Revolt in Virginia. Agriculturally, Virginia was only beginning to pull back from a lengthy decline in productivity. The extensive planting of tobacco and wheat had stripped the soil of its viability, something that George Washington had realized many years before. 
though gradually improved methods, allowing for greater sustainability developed with wheat production increasing between the 1840 and 1850 censuses. Tobacco production remained on a decline in the same period, but had a resurgence by the 1860 census to nearly double the 1840 level of production. However, as Paul W. Gates notes in his book, The Farmer's Age, Agriculture, 1815-1860, quote, Virginia had made a notable agricultural comeback by 1860, but it still showed the tragic results of past errors. As a sign of its decline, the state had just over 20,000 less slaves in 1840 than it did in 1830, while the national slave population increased by 32% over the same period. As with many parts of the nation at the time, Virginia's citizens longed for what they saw as the good old days, and the Democratic split between administration and conservative factions allowed Whigs their opportunity to step in to bring things back in line. We can only speculate on the influence that Harrison's policies would have had on Virginia. As was clear from the election, Harrison was not completely in line with our way of thinking, as he lost the state by around 1,400 votes, even with Tyler on the ticket. However, what the Virginians, as well as the rest of the nation, ultimately got was their native son, the last two-date president from Virginia, though it should be noted that Woodrow Wilson was born in Virginia. Tyler was more in line with Southern ideologies, and indeed became the, to date, only president to actively rebel against the United States. Though he was a member of the Peace Commission of 1861 and worked to achieve a resolution to the secession crisis, once Virginia seceded, he threw himself into the cause, despite his fears that it would lead to ruin for the South. He would not live either to take his seat in the Confederate House of Representatives or to see the war through, as he died soon after midnight on January 18, 1862, outliving his predecessor as president and fellow Virginia native by just over 21 years. The last sentence of Robert M. Owen's Mr. Jefferson's Hammer, William Henry Harrison, and the Origins of American Indian Policy is, and I quote, William Henry Harrison was a son of Virginia. In his study of Harrison, primarily focusing on his tenure as governor of the Indiana Territory prior to the War of 1812, Owens understood Harrison to embody and emulate the values of the Virginia planter class. However, with my focus being on the latter part of Harrison's career, I see him as standing in stark contrast to his contemporary, John Tyler, who was, by nature of residence and his situation in life, the embodiment of the Virginia planter class. Tyler was a slaveholder who benefited from coerced labor, while Harrison was beginning to express proto-progressive ideas, as in a speech in Dayton, Ohio, at the end of the campaign on October 1, 1840, when he asserted, quote, in true democratic feeling, that all the measures of the government are directed to the purpose of making the rich richer and the poor poor, they ought to be rejected. The decades, the geography, and the experiences had changed these two men and shaped them quite differently. However, when seeking solace from the demands of his assumption of the presidency prior to the inauguration, Harrison left Washington, D.C. and returned to Berkeley, his childhood home. He returned to the Tidewater that he had left so many years before, setting out on his own path to make his name and his mark. Given what we know about his imminent death 
It is poignant that he returned so soon before to the place of his birth. But even without that, it reflects a human trait of sentiment. No matter how many steps we walk forward, there is a tendency to return to where we began. One has to wonder, though, whether Harrison, the native Virginian, long removed, having traveled back to Berkeley, would have agreed with the sentiment that one can never go home again. Speaking of home, before we part, I did want to share a bit of trivia. For those who don't know, John Tyler is currently the president who had the most children, with a brood that was 15 strong. Now, before you go feeling sorry for poor Mrs. Tyler, you should know that there were two Mrs. Tylers. His first wife, Letitia, had eight children before she died during his presidency, while his second wife, the much younger Julia, had seven children, the last being born in 1860. His third-to-last child, Lion Gardiner, was born in 1853 and also had two wives and numerous children, though less than half as many as his father. Lion Gardiner's two last living children were born in 1924 and 1928, and thus the grandson of a man who became president 175 years prior to this broadcast still lives in the family home. The Tyler genealogy can be found at the Sherwood Forest website for any interested at sherwoodforest, all one word, dot o-r-g. That does it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed. Please feel free to send any questions, comments, or show ideas to Harrison Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode on the Revolutionary Generation in 1840.